Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 19th, 2017, and my guest is the legendary Mike Munger of Duke University, the all-time leader in Econ Talk appearances with over 30 to his credit. I didn't even bother counting them up. He's got such a lead on the second-place person. just doesn't even matter. He's, he's the Tom Brady of, um, of economics podcasting guesthood. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. It is always a pleasure, even if it is deflating. Yeah, well – that's a very clever response, especially <laughs> since you know Tom Brady's the all-time regular season wins leader at the 187, and Brett Favre and Peyton Manning of 186. So it's not really in playoff wins he leaves everyone in the dust, but in regular season, yeah. uh, that's a bad. It's a bad example. I apologize for that. Well, I I appreciate the fact that I've been able to be on as much as this, and I do ask the uh, indulgence of the listeners to put up with another one. But I'm I'm looking forward to our talk. Uh, as am I, and uh, of course, it's too late. Many listeners have already turned their um, <laughs> their, their phone off, but having heard your name, but you know, whoever's left out there listening will, uh, I'm sure, appreciate it. Small selection bias there, but what can you do? <laughs> uh, I want to, our topic for today is a recent essay of yours, which we will, of course, link to. And you open that essay with a question. It's um, that you you say you're often asked, which is. What is the most important concept in political economy? And I want to let the list, our listeners think about that for a minute, what you, know, what you might out there think about as the most important concept in political economy. But your answer, Mike, uh, really surprised me. What was it? Well, I would claim, and I'm not sure I would have said this five years ago, and I certainly would not have said it ten years ago, but I now would say that it's permissionless innovation. Now, to be fair, I'm talking about political economy. If you were to ask me what's the most important concept in economics, I would say opportunity cost. It's a hard concept. We don't always understand it. And the reason we use prices is as a measure of the opportunity cost of resources. But in political economy, in the thing that we use to understand why it is that some nations grow and prosper and others bump along near the bottom of the possible range of growth paths, I think permissionless innovation is the most important concept. Uh, and that, it, that essay, by the way, is at uh, learnliberty.org, and we will put a, a link up to it. Um, it's, I could derail our entire conversation here for the next hour by saying opportunity cost. It's in my top five, but it's not number one. It would, it would be emergent order, market forces, competition, uh, which would be one. That's my first one. But I'll, I'll grant you that it's in the top five, and, and I won't derail it. We'll, we'll stick with uh, the most important concept in political economy. Um, I would have said the rule of law, uh, and then my second would have been that there is no will of the people, a concept I've really learned a lot about from talking to political economist Mike Munger. That's a previous <laughs> episode where you talk about your book uh, – you co-authored with your son, Choosing in Groups. I recommend that to listeners, and we have Richard Epstein and others. Maybe you, Mike, also talking about the rule of law. Uh, but but today we're going to talk about permissionless innovation. Make make the case for me why it's in the in the top five or no, maybe even number one. It is interesting that you would raise rule of law because rule of law potentially – is the same thing. It would just depend on what the content of the law is. The rule of law means that we are governed by principles, not by individual discretion, and that those rules apply to everyone without any kind of privilege. But it would still depend on the content of the laws. So if you have stupid laws that apply to everyone individually, rule of law wouldn't be that much help. Rule of law is necessary, but not sufficient. Permissionless innovation means that we are able to insulate innovations from having to ask permission. And as I say in the essay, there's two sources of permission that you, an innovator might have to get. They're different, and each of them is really damaging. Uh, 
One is from the government. Let's suppose that the government does have rule of law and the rule of law says you need to fill out all these forms and you need to get the permission of these experts because they are after all experts in order to go ahead with this innovation. So if you had asked uh, experts in computers in 1979-1980, should we spend society's resources on uh, microcomputers, on personal computers, they all would have said no. Politics works at the median and experts are inherently conservative. So you could have rule of law, but still fail permissionless innovation. The second kind of permission that's damaging, and we, we, it's amazing how often we do some version of this, is that you have to get the consent of competitors before you do something that's going to harm them. So the kind of permission that we have to get is either from experts who work for the state and are inherently conservative. They try to protect the status quo because that's what the conventional wisdom is. And the other is, permission from competitors. Do I get to make something that's going to harm your profit position? Now, and we have to get away from both of those. I mean, the other issue with getting permission from regulators is they might have political interests in preferring one group to another, yeah. which is where the rule of law breaks well, down. At best. Yeah, at even best. at best. No, I, I accept the point. Uh, but I think that's just, I think that's that's worth mentioning. And I, and I think it's hard for, Many of our listeners, of course, in the United States, uh, in general, we tend to think of regulatory bodies as somewhat impersonal, whereas in a less developed economy, you know, the, you know, the general's uncle can get special privilege. But, of course, that's true in the United States as well, right? There are people who pull strings for you. Um, I'll, I'll never forget talking to a restaurateur who, who told me back – this was back when I lived in St. Louis – that he donated – he ran a restaurant. He had a chain of restaurants, and he donated to people of both parties. And I said, why do you do They said, well, because I need them. Because every once in a yeah. while, things are going to be trouble for me. And, and the rent-seeking aspect of regulation is a way to encourage people to give money so that you can untie the strings that are in the way and, and the barriers and give permission is, is a problem. But I know you know that already, and you're trying to avoid that. Well, but it is, it is I think at the at best you're going to face these two kinds of permission. So in the city of Raleigh there have been a number of attempts North Carolina for, in North Carolina where I live, um there have been a number of attempts for food trucks to come in and offer lunch, dinner by the side of roads in legal parking spaces. And restaurants have succeeded in preventing that. Now, that means that you have to get the permission of the people that your innovation, that your thing that presumably is being, uh, is benefiting consumers. Uh, that's the, the, in fact, that's what the competitors are worried about is that you're going to provide something to consumers. That's the evidence for why that they're yeah. opposing it. Uh, they've managed to prevent it, and they've used regulations to do that. Now, they come up with reasons like health, and uh, and some of them are probably legitimate. And if I were a restaurant owner, I probably would think, you know, that this is this is great. We're protecting the public. So I, I'm not saying that people are, are necessarily acting badly. What we need to have is a system, and this is what permissionless innovation means. It's a presumption in favor of innovation. It's a rebuttable presumption. But the presumption is in favor of here is a list of things that are prohibited. Everything else is permitted. So sometimes we'll have uh, visitors from Germany come over and I'll, I'll turn right on a, at a stop sign and they'll say, well, is that permitted? And I say, well, in the United States, it's actually permitted unless it's prohibited. And in Germany, it's basically the opposite. Here's a you list of a red, things you, you can you do. You mean at a red light. You said a stop sign, right? You yeah, mean right, right on red. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At, at a red light. And there's no sign that's saying it's legal, whereas they're used to a system where unless there's a sign that says you can turn right on red, you can't. And in the U.S., it's the flip. Yep. If there is a sign that says you cannot turn right on red, then you can't. But the presumption is favor of being able to do it. So if you write that larger, there's a, the, the comparison is, and Adam Thurer uh, at Mercatus is the one who often makes this argument, it's a presumption in favor of innovation. It's a presumption in favor of autonomy. Now, you may have some, some times when you can't do that, but by and large, you don't have to get permission, and it makes all the difference in the world. It's what the default is. That's a, that's a perfect example for U.S. versus Germany. Although that particular example is not so important in the case of actual innovation. It's a little uh, – yeah. potentially yeah. a lot well, more Well, it's important. a prosaic – 
it's a prosaic example, but it is one that it, I, I actually do get that reaction where people are surprised that where's the sign that says it's permitted? No, actually, it, there's only a sign that says it's prohibited. Yeah, it's, it's, it's culturally really, really interesting. Uh, your example, though, of food trucks is a case where the existing competitors, the restaurants, use the regulatory process to try to keep out uh, competitors – and as you point out, they're going to use – they might use health and safety. The sink's not big enough in the case of the food truck or whatever they're going to invoke. And as you said, sometimes maybe it's a legitimate argument. Um, yeah. But there are situations where you literally have to get permission. So a we've talked about this on the program before. In many states – not all states. I was – that may have been uh, misleading to listeners in the past. In many states uh, – a hospital that wants to open has to uh, get literally permission, I think, if I have this correctly, yeah. correct, from yeah. existing hospitals in the area and has to prove that there's a need for that hospital. But I think it's even they, called I think, a certificate of need. You yeah. have to get your competitors to say, you know, think, we can't provide this service. And, and I'm here in um, – I can't help but think about it because it's just – just heard it this morning. We're here. We're here in – uh, I'm here in Montgomery County, which is one of the more regulatory counties in America, and I want to put a porch on my on the back of my house. And there's going the the person who's going to build the porch said to me this morning, "Well, he's not sure how it is in Montgomery County. He's not from here. He's going to he'll have to check. But you know, there's a certain distance I have to leave from the end of the porch to my back property line." And if if I don't meet that, I've got to try to get a variance, an exception, a waiver. And there's one strategy I can use, evidently, where I just have to get permission from all the neighbors around me to uh-huh. use my property as I see fit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know there's an externality. It could be an eyesore. They could but not like it. There's a, that's an interesting and fun example of the competitors, but others no, that might like be yeah. affected by it. Yeah, so that's they, a good analogy. Yeah, so, so the, the – uh, the builder said, well, you know, no, you just have to walk around your neighbors and, and get their permission. And he said that in a, in a very nonchalant way because where this porch would be really isn't in the line of sight of too many of my neighbors in any annoying way. And I said, but what if they don't like me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, really, you know, and he, he kind of laughed at that. But it, if, if one of them doesn't like me, they could yeah. keep me from having a porch. It's a bizarro Veto, and that veto is a little more important when a hospital wants to open, uh, I would say, than when I want to build my porch, but they are the same phenomenon. There's a number of examples, dozens, in fact, in a relatively new book by Dick Carpenter from the Institute for Justice, and it's called Bottlenecks. And he documents, Carpenter documents, the uh, different licensing requirements and permission requirements for professions in different states. And it's just amazing how often you have to get something like a certificate of need. And of course, the, your analogy to the, the reason that I don't like you might be that you're my competitor. It might be, I just don't like you. I'm going to discriminate. You're giving all these other people the discretion to say no. So instead of the, the presumption is you have to go out and persuade all of these people. If they don't like you for no good reason, you can't put a Porsche on your house. Or even a good reason. Um, you know, neighbor doesn't like they don't rake my leaves early enough in the year for the neighbor's taste. Uh, they don't like. Or, or too often you use a leaf blower. Exactly. I'm tired of that. Yeah. Uh, so there's. I, I, that's a legitimate reason to be annoyed, by. I think. Uh, I, I try to take a live and let live attitude for what it's worth, but. I can understand someone being annoyed, whether they would then take it out on me by not giving me permission to build a porch. That's a different question, yeah. but it's an interesting yeah. question. Uh, yeah. You know, you give the example in the paper, which is um, quite interesting to me, of, of FedEx, because I think most people uh, don't know much about that. Uh, FedEx, now we think of just sort of a delivery company, and of course does a lot of deliveries, but in its first incarnation, it delivered letters – Overnight, and sometimes packages, but mostly crucial letters. Yeah, letters uh, and documents. And when every once in a while someone would say to me, well, see, there's competition. And I'd say, well, actually, not really, because it's against the law to deliver mail. And I'd always wondered how FedEx was able to 
do what looked a lot like delivering mail. And, you know, they're really, I think they're, I don't think they're allowed to use your, po- this is just another aside, I apologize, Mike, but I don't think they're allowed to use your uh, mailbox. Nope, they I are think not. the mailbox, it's, uh, this, uh, this offends me, I have to say. It's one of the most inane offenses of things that offend me. But I think the <laughs> mailbox belongs to the federal government, not to me, it's even though like, I bought it and put like it on an, my house. The, 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 our embassy in Paris is, in legal terms, U.S. territory. And so the inside <laughs> of your mailbox is, in legal terms, Federal territory. Yeah. If you trespass on federal territory, FedEx. If your neighbor comes and puts some cookies in your in your mailbox, that's a federal offense. They're trespassing or a party invitation. Yep. And we got around that. That email thing really solved that problem. But the um, in the old days, and you don't see this anymore because I, you know for obvious reasons. But uh, you know the, I think the post office sued. Was it? Was, am I getting this wrong? Was it the Boy Scouts because they were delivering some kind of packages in using um, mailbox? I may be confusing a couple stories there, but the point is the, the, the post office is very, very vigilant uh, yeah. a long time ago, very vigilant about competitors. And yeah. so how did FedEx become a competitor? Well, there was a sort of little noticed and I think no one expected important loophole where a courier service, uh, like a bike courier service in New York, so suppose I need to get a contract across town quickly, and the contract really is just a, a letter, it's folded up in an envelope, I can pay a courier service to do that very quickly. And the the post office law, the law that gives a post office a monopoly, said that that's going to be exempt, but it had to be extremely urgent. And some people have, several people have written me since I, uh, published this little paper and said they'd noticed that on Federal X, FedEx packages. They'd always wondered why it says that, but it and the on the FedEx envelope it always says extremely urgent. Well, which sounds know, like <laughs> a, which sounds like a, like a, like humor. Urgent uh, uh, is it urgent humor, sufficient? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yep, but but that's literally quoting from the law. What they're doing is invoking that loophole in the the law that gives the post office a monopoly. So what Federal Express had to do, in effect, was ask. I, I said there's two sources. One is the government, and the other is your competitors. In this case, they are one and the same. Federal Express had to ask the post office for permission. They, in effect, got permission because the courts would grant that the extremely urgent loophole applied, and that's why Federal Express exists. Which, um, which is amazing. I, in passing, I want to remark on a comment you made in passing in your essay where you talked about uh, this famous story that I've often wondered if it's apocryphal. And I've quoted it before on the program, but I think it's important to quote it again where when, when Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, was in management school at Yale, or maybe may have been an undergrad, but he was taking a class. And um, I was always told that his... His econ professor, maybe it was his business professor, gave him a C for the paper that proposed that FedEx um, be ex- exists. He, he he came up with the idea of FedEx and, and used it in a paper in college or grad school. It was a, it was a, it, as I read it, it was at Yale. And it was a business plan for a business, and it was supposed to be hypothetical. You're just supposed to say. Here's a business plan, and the professor said, this is a great idea, but it has to be possible, and so he got a C. The, the fact that it was clearly just impossible, there's no way that you could do this, meant that uh, – and that's experts. Experts, by their nature, are really bad at innovation because what we – what experts understand, and I, when I say we, I would include myself, economists generally are terrible at predicting innovations. We're not very good at being entrepreneurs because we tend to think in terms of the existing infrastructure. Whereas entrepreneurs say, let's try to do something else. Now, to be fair, most of the time the experts are right and the ideas that seem stupid really are. But some ideas that seem stupid to the experts turn out to be really great. And so when Fred Smith uh, basically asked an expert at Yale about this business plan. That's a great idea, but it, it could never actually work. And not long later, Fred Smith was a millionaire. Yeah, I just going to, I have to defend as 
I think I may have done before. I want to defend, even though it comes naturally to me to make fun of my fellow um, economists and professors and to mock them mercilessly on this program. Uh, and when you said, you know, they don't, economists aren't very good at predictions because they're, they tend to be. They're predicting innovation. They're predicting innovation. I, I, I would, the reason I would have given is because obviously the fact that they've chosen to be in an industry that's remarkably uncompetitive and has <laughs> tenure in it and all kinds of other things, it's clearly selects for people who are rather uh, risk averse rather than uh, risk loving. So. Wait, and you consider that to be a defense? <laughs> No, I have a different defense for the for the yeah. No, you're right. It's not. But I had a different defense for the Yale management professor gave him a C. It's conceivable to you and me, I think, certainly to me, and I bet even to you, that the paper that Fred Smith turned in could have actually been a very infeasible version of FedEx. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. so I don't, you know, I, I I'd like to see that paper. Um, well, but the, the people had exactly the same reactions to Uber and to Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah, we've talked no about way. that. Fact, sure. you, you still think that about Airbnb? Yeah, it doesn't. It, it doesn't exist. Actually, it, it can't work. No, it doesn't work. Obviously, uh, <laughs> right? If, if someone had come to me to as if, if I had been friends uh, with the founders of Airbnb, and of course we had one of them on his on a talk. A while back, but if I'd been if they'd been my personal friends, they say, "You know, I've got this new idea. Would you like to invest?" Then in? I would have laughed at them because I would have said, yeah. "I'm not going to waste my money. No one's going to yeah. say in a stranger's house with with no guarantee of safety and that the that the place is in good condition." And it's a horrible idea. It's, you're going to go out of business and you're never going to make a penny. So yeah, yeah. well, I'm an so, I'm, I'm, not, I'm an academic, so I'm a bad person to ask. <laughs> we're we're by definition we're well, it'd be surprising if we knew because we are in a very conservative, not political business, but we're in a conservative business because the, the the very idea of innovation is hard for us to imagine. But I think it's important that we recognize that, and that's why permissionless innovation is so important because there are other people who try stuff out, and it's a search process. Most of them fail. But if they have to get permission, economists think at the margin, if every time you want to try an experiment, you have to get permission at the margin, it's going to reduce the number of those experiments, which means that the search for innovations will proceed much more slowly and less efficiently. And you could argue that some of the problems that the developing world has, poor parts of the world have, is that everything requires permission. Use of land, use of property, use of starting a business, that the amount of red tape that you have to get through um, is so high that it obviously has a real impact. Right, and that's another form of the argument for what would be the top five in political economy would be one of my mentors, Douglas North. His claim would be transactions costs. Yep. And transactions costs are a big factor in determining the level of permissionless innovation. And, of course, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was going to make the observation, which I don't think you talk about in the paper, that the amount of permission you have to get uh, varies a lot, certainly by country, which I just alluded to in terms of poor countries that struggle with bureaucracy sometimes. Uh, certainly across, within a country, in the United States, because of our system of states, counties, cities, uh, it depends on where you are uh, for how much permissionless innovation is allowed. So I can't build a porch willy-nilly, and then ask for um, uh, permission after the fact. It's too late. I need a permit or I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, But, of course, that's not true, or the amount of permitting that's required varies a lot regionally in the United States. Certainly, uh, certain cities make it much more difficult. Um, Do you think about that at all? Well, that's an important consideration, the fact that the amount of permission differs quite a bit made, and I've heard this explanation, um, that one of the things that Silicon Valley in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, differ on is the use of non-compete agreements. And non-compete agreements were quite common in Massachusetts, which meant that, and this, this story may be apocryphal, it's a difference that may not may cause as much of the difference, but suppose that we're looking at Boston and Silicon Valley in 1980, and Boston has a lot of colleges and researchers, but Massachusetts law allows, and which that means it encourages non-compete agreements. So if I'm working for an innovator and I quit and go to work for somebody else, I cannot 
use any of my knowledge for at least a year, and by that time it's enough out of date that I'm probably not going to move around. California doesn't allow or at least restricts the use of non-compete agreements. That means that I can go somewhere else without the state or my prior employer's permission. And that fact is probably capitalized in salaries. Maybe people wanted higher salaries to work in Boston, but it meant that the the degree of permissionless innovation in Boston held them back. And that's why we think of Silicon Valley and not Boston as being the place where much of the innovations in the internet and the, the sharing economy have taken place. Now that's a, it's a just so story. It yeah. looks at one small difference, but there probably is something to it in the sense that having a non-compete agreement where I couldn't go somewhere else and do the same thing for a year or two meant that it was hard for people to move around. It was harder to hire talent. And it, it's a, a kind of transactions cost or restriction on how quickly people could adapt. Well, I, I guess my thought on that, what goes against my normal uh, biases, but um, it's an interesting thing just to chew on. And I invite listeners to do so as I'm doing now. To chew on the fact that, well, who's who does that help, a non-compete agreement? Usually we'd say, well, that helps the worker because I'm free then to go work for another company right away. But, of course, if that made it hard for companies to make investments in workers, that's not good for a worker, and it certainly discourages yeah. companies from locating there. So it could have cut the other way. Oh, and for it, workers, it, I think that's right. It's not clear whether it's good for work. I, in fact, I probably get paid quite a bit more in Boston, and I get – better trained. They're more willing to invest. Right. But maybe it means that I'll lose some of my um, companies aren't as aren't as able to find new companies aren't as able to find employees there because they can't steal them away from existing companies. Just an example of how it's very difficult in a complex world to figure out what the effects are. But it reminds me of the recent uh, Econ Talk episode with uh, Philip Orswell where we talk about cities as places where apparently productivity seems to be higher. And you know, we talked about whether that's because it just attracts more talented people or is there yeah. some synergy right. uh, that's going on. And, and this point about non-competes is saying, well, actually there is a synergy. Uh, when you allow uh, – I was going to say something that was wrong. I was going to say when you allow firms to interact and, and workers to move around, it creates more life. But, of course, you can do that on your own in Boston by not requiring non-competes. So then the question would be, is there some exter- external benefit, extern- positive yeah. externality that a firm would, would not take account of? So it would put in a non-compete out of its own self-interest perhaps, not taking account of the fact that there are other costs for the region as a whole and that as every firm does that, Boston becomes less effective. And it means that the general equilibrium effects are the place where you have to look. It might be that workers don't mind non-competes. Companies want non-competes. But in some larger sense, over a period of 10 or 20 years, the the firms that succeed make a lot more money. But it means that you're also a lot of companies are going to go out of business because they invest in some workers who then leave and I'm stuck. So you'd get a, you'd get more churn, but more innovation and more. So permissionless innovation, the problem with it is it really does cause a lot of harm to the companies that lose. And that churning means that you're constantly turning over where you work. It's a, it's a difficult thing to ask workers to do. Workers might well prefer more stability, but the general equilibrium effects, that's the, the, the claim that, that is being made here. Overall, you get more innovation and more benefit to consumers. So before we tape started recording this, uh, you mentioned Grace Hopper, and uh, I didn't know uh, who Grace Hopper was, and I didn't know about Hopper's Law, but I want you to give that, uh, tell us that, about that, and then I want to talk a little bit about permissionless innovation within a workplace or within a family, and then we'll come back to some of these uh, larger economy-wide effects. So talk about Grace Hopper. Well, computer scientists, when they think of permissionless innovation, will often refer to Hopper's Law, and I'd seen that before, but I'd also seen the reference to uh, Admiral Grace Hopper, who was a rear admiral in the Navy, but also a computer scientist, and she had said in the in the context 
of being in the Navy and doing computer work that it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. So uh, go ahead and do it. And then if it screws up, you can ask for forgiveness later. But if you ask for permission in advance, you'll never find out. And probably you'll, you'll alert other people to your plans. And it, 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 may, it may fail. So in the context of, of uh, computer innovation and the tech industry, Hopper's Law is a defense of permissionless innovation. I think it's interesting to recognize that what that means is they go a step further. They would invoke Hopper's law as a justification for saying that you want experimentation with new technologies, new business models, things like that should be permitted by default so that you don't even have to ask for permission or forgiveness after the fact. But if you go bankrupt, you go bankrupt. That's the forgiveness that you have to ask for is you have to ask for the forgiveness of your investors. Man, it's just a, it's just such a provocative, simple and provocative idea. I was thinking for a minute about my mind wandered while you're talking. I apologize, but it, you stimulated a, a story I remember where a um, uh, employee of a hotel was loading the bags of a of a customer into their taxi, heading out, having checked out on the way to the airport, and the cab pulled out, and the employee looked down and realized that he'd left one of the suitcases behind. <laughs> and he immediately, this was either, I think it was a Ritz, Ritz-Carlton, I think. He immediately um, jumped in a cab, uh, you know, walked off the, the property, uh, jumped in the cab, and, and said, follow that cab. Or had it, maybe it was too late. Maybe it had taken a bit of, a time, bit of time, but said, go to the airport. Now, that's a case where that employee didn't ask for permission, didn't go to – because there's transaction costs for asking for permission. There's time that elapses. Instead of going to the supervisor saying, you know, I messed up. Can I go to the airport? Just immediately the culture of that company was such that that's what they did. And I so think about for a minute how companies encourage innovation within their ranks rather than um, uh, – and encourage – excuse me. They encourage innovation and and exp- – expect you to innovate without permission and ask for forgiveness if it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and so the, that story that you just told was invoked in the past year or so in the context of United airlines. So the United airlines, as the listeners will recall, had oversold the flight. They had to get four members of a crew to a different city. And so first they asked and then demanded, which was a law. Well, (laughs) they have to do it. Yeah. But then the, 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 the rule said that they would, they would ask for volunteers up to a certain amount. I don't remember the amount, but it wasn't that much. It was like six or $700. Nobody volunteered. And so they chose a, I'm making air quotes, volunteer who happened to be a, a, a man who claimed to be a doctor. He had to see patients the next day. And, you know, the, for whatever reason, they chose this volunteer. They dragged him off. They, they beat physically. him up. They physically dragged him off. Yes. And they didn't have any discretion with the, the defense that the United employees used was we could not have more money. We had to get these other people on. We just chose people. Now United airlines then changed the rules in just the way that you have suggested, uh, allowing people to innovate without permission. Now they can go up to 1500 or $2,000. Again, I don't remember the amount, but it's some multiple, it's about three times as much. So they have far more discretion now. And that means that, though, you have to trust the people who are in that situation. So the, the example that you give is this guy should not have made the mistake of not loading the suitcase. Given that he did, he had to fix it. And it meant he left work without permission. He was AWOL. It was, it was as if he had quit. But he was doing something that they should sanction given the larger importance of what was going on. So the, to what extent do you have rules that entrust your employees with the discretion that they need to do what the manager would do if he were there to make the decision on the spot. Because the the head of the company at United would never have said, you know, it would be great public relations if we beat the heck out of this guy and then drag him off, knowing that all these cell phones are going to have videos of this poor man being beaten and dragged off. It was a terrible idea. The amount of advertising, it's going to take them a decade to win back the customers that they lost by this one stupid act, which was a consequence of not allowing permissionless innovation. Yeah, I mean, it's just a great example of um, of the importance of local knowledge, right? 
So yeah. when you see a situation where you need to do something, once you have to ask permission, it's going to take a while. You might make a mistake from above because you don't have all the information. You want the person on the ground with the most information to make the decision if, in fact, you trust that person. And so it well, says, but that's the thing in the military. There's a, a the, the the local commander. What you say is the unit commander is responsible for all the unit does or fails to do. So you ask the commander on the ground, and if they did it, it's his fault. If they didn't do it, it's her fault. But if you don't trust them, you relieve them of command. You don't try to micromanage them because you don't know enough. And that it's a terrible trade-off because suppose the person does the wrong thing. You have to have enough training where you think that person there with the local knowledge is going to be able to do it. That's exactly the same thing that entrepreneurs are trying to figure out is – Rather than ask permission of an expert who has some sort of abstract consideration or ask the permission of a competitor who they have plenty of local knowledge, but they they don't want you to build a porch on your house because they don't like you, then that's not allowing people to use the resources to to put them to their best value. And, of course, the other way that firms try to deal with this, they have have a rule book. Like you said, the United case, they have have a manual. They're just following the strictures of the manual – but, of course, a manual can never be complete. That can never take into account all examples. And so you really want to have a situation – you want to have a corporate culture uh, where your natural uh, inclination is to – excuse me, I'll say it differently. You want a corporate culture where you want to hire people you trust with skills to make decisions in real time so you don't have to always rely on the manual, always rely on permission, and that way you'll get a better better result. And, and yeah. there will be mistakes. Of course there will be mistakes. Yeah. But that – the benefits outweigh the mistakes, but that's—I mean—I think that's a perfect example of the economic way of thinking. Because unless they would say, "Well, but once in a while they'll mess up," yeah, of course they will. But the rule book messes up too all the time. They both mess up. You got to, tr- and so does the bureaucrat. There's a particular kind of mess up, and you're a, another relatively frequent guest on um, Econ Talk that I'm a big fan of, Nassim Taleb has talked about what sort of mess-up should we be concerned about. And instead of being concerned about the everyday sort of mess-ups, that one we should allow people to do. The question is, what if things go really, really wrong? You want a system that's not fragile with respect to really, really bad mess-ups. You want redundancy, and you want people to be able to have enough discretion to foresee that and prevent it. So what Taleb says, and it's a very interesting perspective, is try to think in terms of system. What if something really, really goes wrong? wrong. What are we going to do then? And that, in a way, is what happened at United. Suppose that there's a catastrophe. Do you have to keep following the stupid rules, even though you know it's going to be a disaster? You can say, all right, in this case, don't beat the guy up and drag him off. And I love it when I'm confronted by an employee who's going by the book, right? And I sometimes, even though I'm very frustrated, say I'm late for a flight or I've got some issue on an airplane, you know, I want to say to the person, I know you're just doing your job. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's a really bad decision you're making, <laughs> and I know you have to make it. So I guess I'm just stuck by. You know, I walk away. It's just, um, yeah. and of course, I don't know the full story either. I'm only thinking about me usually in that situation. So it's 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 a complicated thing. Before we go on to something else, I want to talk about uh, family dynamics. Uh, you're a father. I'm a father. Uh, children often are confronted with per- asking for permission versus forgiveness. And I've noticed that teenagers are really big on the forgiveness. Um, in in our we're, we run a tight ship uh, in the Roberts family, maybe too tight because there's trade offs there as well. But my kids, as they got older, learned that often they would not get permission, so they would seek they would do it and seek forgiveness. Uh, and of course, I would notice that, and that would there's a, a great dynamic there. Do you have any thoughts on that in the in the Munger family or in general? <laughs> You can talk about your you can talk about your spouse too if you want. Yeah, well, I, I often <laughs> right. I I I've, I've learned that I need to ask for permission because for, forgiveness <laughs> will not be forthcoming. <laughs> that that, that uh, but she's yeah she she's come up with a structure of incentives to solve that problem for for me. I often wonder if teenagers don't really wonder, don't really think much about it, or maybe they internalize it. So I remember Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, the cartoon from quite a while ago um, when Calvin was going to jump off the roof and use a sheet as a parachute. Uh, the tiger, Hobbes, said to him, uh, don't you think you should ask your mom if it's smart to do this? And uh, 
Calvin responded, oh, no, I don't have to ask questions I already know the answer to. <laughs> so uh, I think that's how, that's that's how my teenagers, they, they, they knew what the answer was going to be. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't get caught. And if they did, they can always ask. Because that, that's one of the things is that enforcement has, enforcement's costly. Yep. And the probability of getting caught is much less than one. Yeah, for sure. So that, that's another thing on the side of asking for forgiveness is you, you may not get caught in the first place. Correct. And if it works out well, then you can wave it around. And if it doesn't, you hope they don't notice, right? Yes. Uh, I'm debating whether to tell a personal story here, and I'm not going to. It's, uh, <laughs> it's about a, uh, a relative of mine and uh, the honesty that was portrayed after a bad event when forgiveness was asked for. But I'm going to leave it alone. I want to turn. I want to turn. But I'll tell you after we finish taping. Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, uh, Friedrich Schiller, who I think has never been mentioned on Econ Talk before, and he's German poet, uh, late uh, 1700s to early 1800s. And if you had said, "Do you know anything about Friedrich Schiller?" I think I could have said one thing, and one thing only, which is that he wrote. The words to the uh, Ode to Joy, which is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which are in German. I don't even know what they are. <laughs> so yeah. my Schillerian knowledge was slim, but you have a fantastic reference to Schiller in, uh, in this piece. Which was sent to me and I guess to us um, by yeah, a professor at U- University of Illinois, J. Fred Geertz. So uh, thanks to him for this because I did not know of it. Um, well, and I knew in the original, talk- we knew it in the original German, of course. We didn't know it in the English. And Fred, okay, the English. I, yeah. I, you're, that, that is not forgivable. You didn't ask for permission, and no one's going to forgive it. So uh, he's talking about the English dance, and I actually spent three or four hours trying to figure out what the heck English dance that was. So I, if, if listeners know enough about what is the, the English danza that uh, – Schiller is talking about, I, I would be interested to know, because there's a lot of English folk dances, but Schiller's description of it is so great, so let me read it. I know, and he's talking about society, so this is the, this, the metaphor here is intentional. I know of no better image for the ideal of a beautiful society than a well-executed English dance, composed of many complicated figures and turns. A spectator located on the balcony observes an infinite variety of crisscrossing motions which keep decisively but arbitrarily changing directions without ever colliding with each other. Everything has been arranged in such a manner that each dancer has already vacated his position by the time the other arrives. Everything fits so skillfully yet so spontaneously that everyone seems to be following his own lead without ever getting in anyone's way. Such a dance is the perfect symbol of one's own individually asserted freedom as well as of one's respect for the freedom of the other. So the the idea of a dance is one that you actually, I think, have talked about a couple times, once in your book on Adam Smith and then once in a podcast of where you talked about with Jim Otteson and Vernon Smith, where you talked about uh, Adam Smith of thinking of harmony and then you riffed on the idea of a dance. So I think you kind of independently talked about this. What I think is interesting about the metaphor of the dance is each of us in a way is in it for our own purposes. It's expressive. But the rules, the context of the dance also allow us not to interfere with other people's expression of what they want to do in the dance. And some dances are boring, and but some dances encourage, and apparently that's what Schiller thought about this one, some dances encourage a kind of spontaneous beauty because of the order that emerges from the interaction of all these different people's freedoms that articulate, that fit together without interfering with one another. So it's, it's really a remarkable passage. Yeah, I, I, it made me think a lot about the metaphor in, in more detail. It's such a beautiful metaphor for our interactions with others. But the idea that I'm vacating a space, I always think of it as I don't want to step on your toes, either the person I'm dancing with or the other dancers, right? I don't want to bump into people. But Schiller's formulation is also sometimes you need to get out of the way of other people. And, of course, that is part of what you're doing when you're dancing at high speed with a partner or alone. Yeah. In, in on a crowded dance floor. And of course, it's a totally different experience on a crowded dance floor than a non-crowded one. 
it's much more beautiful on a crowded dance floor. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what you said in the other podcast. So let me quote you, if I may. So you talk about um, harmony is the metaphor that Smith uses, but and I'm quoting you. To me, it's a dance of how you partner with an enormous number of people. So that you're partnering, but with an enormous number of people, not directly, but because of the of the rules. Knowing how fast to dance, how not to bump into other people, how not to override, how not to misstep. So. The part of it is the rules, but part of it is kind of the convention of not bumping into other people while at the same time allowing them to uh, express themselves. And that is how I how I end the essay is by comparing that to Twitter. So I don't know if you want to move to Twitter or if there's something else that you can, have on dance. Can we? I want to talk about dance for a minute. We'll come we'll come to Twitter at the end. I because I I, I want to add something that I that I've been thinking a lot about. And it's not directly related to all this, but it's somewhat related. It's okay. Um, and that's the thing about the rules of the game and what motivates us. So in the standard economic models, I'm a utility maximizer. I'm trying to get the most out of whatever it is, the products I'm using, the job I do, the salary I can earn. I might take account of non-monetary factors, of course, but I'm maximizing and I think I got this from Vernon. You're kind to quote me in that episode with Vernon and Jim Otteson. But Vernon Smith, I think, taught me this, that in a Smithian world of the theory of moral sentiments, I'm concerned with propriety. I'm concerned with doing the right thing and playing by the rules. So when I'm out on the dance floor, and again, think of this as a metaphor for how I interact with people more generally at work, in my daily life and with my neighbors and with my friends and my family. When I'm out there on the dance floor, yeah, okay, I want to look good. I want to be seen as a good dancer. I might even have an urge to be seen as the best dancer. I might want that thrill and that honor and that excitement. But in general, that can't be my, my strategy. Because if that's my strategy, I'm going to step, I'm going to do some really I'm going to end up stepping on people. And so my real goal in the dance is to conform to the rules of the dance. If it's a salsa, it's a salsa. If it's a cha-cha, it's a cha-cha. If it's a Charleston, it's a Charleston. And, you know, heaven forbid, if it's disco night, it's disco night. I'm doing the bump. Uh, But I'm playing by the rules, and the rules are about making room for other people. It's about self-expression, but also making room for other people. And I think that tension between what I want to do and the the societal norm it's not a rule it's not a, it's not legislation it's not a statute but the the concept of making room for other people and not always putting myself first is a very different way of looking at human behavior and I see it very much as a theory of moral sentiments smithian way rather than the max you maximizing utility way that we tend to model how people behave well, there there are kinds of dance where it's oh, by yourself. So if it's a theatrical dance, you know, there's particular lighting, you're expressing something. That's different from the kind of social dance that, that you're talking about and that Schiller talks about. Duke every year has a faculty prom. And I've been offered thousands of dollars to sneak a video camera into the faculty prom and video the faculty dancing because we often bump into each other. But what I think we value in that setting is something I would call grace. Yeah, and the, so. the grace is not just graceful motion, but gracefully, you know, not bumping into other people without seeming ostentatiously to say, "Oh no, you go ahead." It's just that it all happens in a way that no one really notices because it works so smoothly. So the 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 what I think the way to think of social dancing. Gracefulness is a way of accomplishing what you want without stepping on others, without bumping into it, and bumping into other people. And I'm not very good at it. I often do bump into people, but I really, really like to dance. I wish I, I had that grace. I think the right metaphor here, counter metaphor, is a gymnastics competition. So, a gymnastics competition, a person goes out on the floor, does this incredibly graceful, acrobatic athletic routine and we all applaud and we and we give people a score you know we, we yeah, but that's we, an animal 
that's an animal kind of grace, a feline kind of grace. So uh, you're exactly right, and that's the distinction. It's not a social grace, but a feline or animal kind of grace where you think, look at the athleticism of that person. And what the dance does that Schiller's talking about, that we're talking about, and in a minute we'll extend to the social setting a little more or more fully, but what the dance does is you're still going to try to be graceful in, in an animal or feline or, or elegant, aesthetic way, but you have to do it within a certain context. Yeah. And uh, the person who, quote, takes over the dance floor and, um, you know, by their aggressiveness pushes people aside and forces people off the floor because they're reckless is a loser, not a winner. And uh, go ahead. That's one of the points in Saturday Night Live. So the, forgive me, Saturday Night Fever. So the movie with John Travolta. You scared me there for a minute. (laughs) Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta and the other people that he hung out with, their objective was to dance in a way that was so ostentatious and over the top that other people would just stand aside and watch. And it, it was a kind of implicit competition um, I'm better than you. It's not the social dance that in economics we think of as a way of the, of the permissionless innovation part of the dance. The harmony that you talked about is that I, the seller, am trying to dance with the buyer in a way to make sure that you get what you want. You get what you need from this transaction so we can continue this social process. Not that although many entrepreneurs would do more of the John Travolta, I'm the only one that makes this prod- this product, I'm going to succeed. So the, the, the dance is such a complicated metaphor for the different kinds of representation of, of economics uh, that I really, I was glad that you and Otteson and Smith had, had talked about it. I'm thinking about it maybe a little bit differently. I'm thinking... Uh, I've got a parcel of land in downtown area of a city, and we're trying to figure out who gets it. And in a socially centrally planned economy, there's petitions and different people might apply for the app opportunity to rent that space and make your case of why the city needs this, it's akin to the hospital case we were talking about earlier. But in a free market, uh, and by a free market, of course, I don't mean anarchy. There, There could be some zoning laws. There could be... Uh, there are going to be sidewalks and, and public property mixed in here. But in general, in terms of who gets the land and who gets to use it, I would mean free market to mean the person who's willing to pay the most or the person the seller is willing to sell it to. And they can choose someone who isn't the best or isn't the highest paying, whatever it is. And we let that happen in most American cities up to a point. There's restrictions of all kinds like my porch. But what's remarkable to me is that's a dance of if the price is too high – Sometimes the person who's in that spot will make way for the other retailer, the other get use of that of land, get out of the way peacefully. They're not going to yeah. break their windows at night to threaten them to leave if they in, want the fact, space. You may not even notice it. It happens so smoothly Correct. that you barely notice it. And we as the consumers never notice, oh, it's, oh there's a new restaurant on the corner. That's interesting. Yeah. Or it's a dry cleaner, whatever it is. And then you realize, oh, that's a good place for me. I'll start trying. That's closer than my other dry cleaner. I'm going to use that. Or they do a better job, I heard from a friend, or whatever it is. And to me, that dance um, of how space and workers get allocated um, is really a beautiful way of thinking about an emergent, uncontrolled, non-top-down, bottom-up system. So a group of people dancing in the English dance regulate – negotiate, in effect, their movements as they go in these complicated patterns around the floor. And the rules of the dance allow them to do this in a way where, you know, they don't, at the beginning, they don't think, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to go there. Each moment, they're reacting to the people that are around them. And that's a very Austrian economics way of thinking about this. what What the market system does, what the price system does is reconcile all of the conflicting plans that people have. So I have a plan for what I'm going to try to accomplish. You have a plan for what you're going to try to accomplish. But the rules of a free market allow us to reconcile. I change my plans in response to new information about the opportunity cost of resources, about prices, about uh, profits that signal whether this is a useful thing for me to open. Should I have a restaurant here or not? And all of those plans are reconciled by the rules 
but it works so smoothly that you don't even notice it. So I've, I had not thought of, of your, the example of, of urban planning. Urban planning happens all the time. The question is, does it happen with somebody calling out commands or does it happen something like the English dance? So well done. I'm going to add one more and then we'll, we'll talk about Twitter and take it home. But the, I was thinking about my, uh, my mom who at 50 decided she wanted to become a nurse and had never been to college. Uh, 50 years old, very scary, but enrolled in nursing school and ended up having a, a wonderful 20-something, maybe even, I think, 20-something year career as a nurse. And of course, being that she's my mom, she's an extraordinary nurse, you know, of course. And I yeah. actually think she yeah. was. She was. Um, and that turned out to be a good thing for the world, I think. Um, but it's you think of a different model of becoming a nurse where you have to apply and you have to ask do we have too many nurses already? Yeah. And in, in in a market system, there's always room for one more. You think about this dance floor. It's a dance floor where there's it, it says plenty of room. It can be very crowded, but there's plenty of room. And in fact, if you're there first, if you're one of the early arrivals on the arrivals on the dance floor, you can do some more spectacular things. Uh, some you know triple flips and swings and pass your partner around your back and all that. But if it's crowded. Usually there's room for a little bit more, and, and it might drive the wages down when, as more and more people enter a field or a profession. Uh, but it, no one says, oh, sorry, we don't give you permission. You can't be a doctor. You can't try to open that, that food truck. You can't, et cetera. So the, the, the more that – it just – a labor market has some of that dance um, uh, metaphor in it and yeah. does not have and, – and captures your point – about permissionless versus uh, having to get permission. Yeah, we, we all have these different plans and purposes. They're bound to conflict, but we have rules by which we negotiate and reconcile those. Some rules are better than others, and when it works, it's, it's really quite beautiful because it may be difficult for, if you're looking up above, as Schiller happened to be, you're looking down, you think, gosh, the intricate patterns here. But none of those patterns are intentional in the sense that any individual means them. It's just a result of following these rules, and some rules work well and some don't. And when, when a new product comes along and somebody has a temporary monopoly on some idea or process – um, it works pretty well, that new product it might. And if it attracts customers, it's going to attract competitors. And they they come onto that dance floor and they're trying to get at the same, I'm going to extend the metaphor one more time here. They might use the same raw materials as the existing competitor. So there's usually room there too. There's going to be multiple people providing those raw materials so that they can get access to the, to the, to the customers also. And they might try to jazz it up a little bit. They might try to make it a little fancier. They might try to yeah. add features. Their their version of the dance might be a little more exotic, but there's still going to be rules about you know how you treat the, the your competitors in terms of you can't break their windows. Um, and the last thing I got to add this because it's just it's such a nice mix of these metaphors. The the jazz band where the the members of the band get to solo, but they also have to play together. And the whole the motif of jazz. It's another way of thinking about emergent order that occasionally you get to play by yourself and really shine, really show off, and really try to impress the other person. Sometimes the two musicians will go back and forth riffing and trying to show who's got the better command of the imp improvisational skill. But ultimately, you come back together and you have to figure out a way for your melody, your harmony, et cetera, to merge with everyone else's. And um, just a beautiful thing, totally spontaneous. Right. Sure, and that that's that is nice because if if we're all playing music and we're just reading it, that's kind of a plan, and that can be nice. A lot of music works that way. Jazz allows uh, refinements, flourishes, extensions, and individual innovation, yeah. but in the context of something that we're all trying to accomplish. Yeah. So let's close with Twitter. Um, I, I never thought well, about that. It's a great, interesting example. The. It had not occurred to me until I was working on this, but some of it was I was wondering how Twitter came about and how it became this thing that many of us now love and sometimes hate. Uh, it is a kind of dance in the sense that I have pretty tightly constrained set of rules. I only have 140 characters. I can put some... Uh, 
I can use graphics, I can put a picture, but it's pretty tightly constrained. Other than that, though, um, I can say almost anything that I want. Anything goes, yeah. And then, but other people respond, and it's a kind of dance. There, there are trolls at this dance. Uh, so, it, and you, you know, maybe you don't want to dance with a troll, but the troll wants to dance with you. What are you supposed to do? So. Twitter's clearly a dumb idea. They called it microblogging to begin with. And this wasn't very long ago. This was um, Evan Williams just in 2013 was talking about Twitter when it was first established, I think in 2008, and said with Twitter, it wasn't clear what it was. They called it a social network. They called it microblogging, but it was hard to define because it didn't replace anything. There's this path of discovery, something like that, where over time you figure out what it is. So the, Twitter itself is a kind of dance or kind of permissionless innovation. They were trying to, to figure out what it was. They weren't sure, the, the people who put Twitter together weren't sure what it was going to be. Twitter actually changed from what we thought it was in the beginning, quoting again, which we described as status updates and a social utility. It is that in part, but the insight we eventually came to was Twitter is really more of an information network than it is a social network. Well, that was in 2013. I wonder what he would say now. Is it more of a social network? So the responses that we get, uh, President Trump uses it to communicate directly. Maybe it's an information network in that sense. When I was in Chile in 2012, um, there was an earthquake, but my computer still worked and I could get a signal. Uh, the only news source that I, has, I had was Twitter, but within 30 seconds, I was getting updates of all sorts of things. So people took the basic Twitter platform and then they added so many different kinds of flourishes and their own purposes. They built innovations on top of the, these simple rules. I think now, though, there's some questions whether Twitter has become kind of, kind of bitter and corrosive. So we're, we're losing civility. Uh, Twitter is because of the kind of corrosive, combative dance, like a big mosh pit. The rules of a mosh pit are a lot different than the rules of the English dance. And in a mosh pit where people are pushing and shoving each other and there's, there's puke on the floor, maybe that's not a dance that you want to be in anymore. So the, the having rules where the behavior over time turns to more socially corrosive activities, what, what, limits do, what limits should we have on permissionless innovation? Is Twitter going to be something that more and more people are just going to say, I don't want to have any part of that? Yeah, and then the question is whether you – know, I've been arguing and pushing for people to use certain behaviors on Twitter that would establish a different set of norms that are out there. So you know, I have a few people who say really distorting and cruel – ugly things about me and I see they say it about other people as well. And this was discussed recently with Megan McArdle and yeah. Econ Talk. Um, you know, there's people who just the trolls you're talking about. And, you know, my goal is to try to respond calmly and civilly, even though I don't want to. I want to yell back. And, you know, we'll see if that catches hold. I I'm not gonna make cause to catch hold, but it may catch hold through people doing that. But I think the more interesting point you make is the the beginning of Twitter, which is, you know, they, they thought it was X, and it turned out to be not just X, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E. Yeah. And so often, and I, I thought, you know, this is just a beautiful, for me, punchline to your, to your insights. The real reason that permissionless innovation is that you often don't know what the innovation is. Yeah. You know, and they, so, they didn't know. <laughs> they, they didn't they, know, They, they right? did not know. Yeah, the Xerox machine, the copying machine is the same thing. It was like, yeah. Oh, maybe it'll have you know a few people will have them. So so often, once this innovation occurs, um, if there was permission to be given, it wouldn't have been given because it's not really very useful. It's not that important. And if we, if someone from the top down was trying to decide whether scarce resources should be devoted to this people and human ingenuity, better to find something else to do. And that would have been a bad decision. I think it's an extraordinary thing. Right. And what that you're right that that I think is the the more important point because it turns out that the innovation in Twitter was not Twitter it was the use that people put Twitter to once yeah. it was available so that was the Twitter had Twitter created a set of rules and 
put it out there. And if you'd asked them, is this going to work? I would have said, no, I wouldn't have invested in Twitter any more than I would have Airbnb, but Airbnb, at least I know what it was. It evolved a little bit. It went more towards business travelers. It wasn't so much, you know, people couch surfing, but it didn't evolve that much. Twitter evolved a lot. It was not what its founders expected it to be. The innovation came in the hands of many, many different people using it for their own purposes, just elaborating the rules rather than following because there were no rules. So the advantage of the reason that Twitter is such an important example of permissionless innovation is that it had almost no rules. And so it allowed all these different embellishments and forms. And I guess if we think of this in dance, if you were to stand up above like Schiller did and look at the Twitter dance floor, it's really big and there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. And over there in a corner, somebody's on fire. They're being beaten with hoses. There's, there's another place where there's music and it's beautiful and there's art. So there, it, it's a whole ecosystem. And people have found their own purposes and they've made micro communities on Twitter in a way that was completely unexpected. Yeah, I mean, I saw this morning, I got to see Lin-Manuel Miranda lip syncing live on Periscope, which he put on Twitter, the last scene of Man of La Mancha, which is one of my favorite uh, musical moments uh, that there is. It was glorious. Uh, So there's so many glorious things on Twitter and so many stupid things on Twitter. It's kind of like, to me, it's like, um, it's like the giant backyard fence on a, on a summer night. Everybody's out showing stuff to other folks, entertaining them, chatting, yelling, fighting. Some are drunk. <laughs> some, some have yeah, the hoses yeah. or the baseball bats. Some are, unfortunately, are not, or, or you can't see them. They're cowering behind the fence. But it is. There, there is a kind Anonymous. of equalizer because we're all doing this on Twitter, but it's, it happened that just before the podcast with Megan McArdle came out, she's teaching a class at Duke this yes. semester. She so I, it, I had yeah. dinner. Well, I had, I had dinner with Megan and um, she was saying some of the problems that she had on Twitter. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I, I have some problems like that on Twitter too. And then later I was thinking, you're an idiot, Munger. Um, that would be like me saying, uh, Ernest Hemingway said, I have a typewriter. And I'd say, yeah, I have a typewriter too. It's really not the same thing. She has tens of thousands of followers. She's dealing with an entirely different thing, but it's still on Twitter. So it's, it, 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 my impulse was to say, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I have no idea what she means. She lives, her life on Twitter is so different from mine. Yeah. And yet we're all there on Twitter together. Yeah, we've all got a backyard defense. Some of us have a bigger fence or a longer fence or <laughs> yeah. more people leaning over it or crashing through it or whatever. My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.